Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gill, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. Several million Americans have neurologic diseases that affect vision, symptoms ranging from dry eye to double vision to legal blindness. About a third of the brain is devoted to vision, and almost any diffuse disease of the brain is going to affect vision. Devastating neurologic diseases are on the rise. Early diagnosis leads to early treatment and better prognosis. The eyes are not only the window to your health, but the window to the health of our brain. It has been well established that neurologic diseases such as multiple sclerosis, myasthenia gravis, and thyroid eye disease may manifest in the eye and is often initially diagnosed by the eye doctor. Because of advancements of modern technology, eye doctors and researchers will soon be able to fulfill a common goal of using the eye and visual pathway as an early predictor of other common devastating neurologic disorders such as Alzheimer's, CTE, and Parkinson's disease. Today's guest, neuro-ophthalmologist Dr. Alberto Gonzalez, has extensive knowledge on the eye-brain connection. His expertise is in sophisticated ocular neurotechnology and is currently the CEO of All Eyes, spelled O-L-L-E-Y-E-S. Dr. Garcia, Dr. Gonzalez Garcia, or Dr. Gonzalez, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Gell. It is actually a pleasure to be here with you and, and it will be my pleasure to share, you know, our modest knowledge about the, you know, the eye. Thank the, you. So explain to the, our audience, what is a neuro-ophthalmologist? A neuro-ophthalmologist, it's a, it's a sub-specialty of ophthalmology, and, um, and it's mostly focused on the structure or all the diseases that affect the connection between the eye and the brain. And of course, including the brain itself and and the eye, um, there are several of these unfortunately diseases that can affect uh, these kind of patients, and uh, they also focus on the treatment of these diseases. Um, lately, uh, we have had a, a tremendous um, advancement on the treatment of these diseases, especially with the advent of the genetic um, treatment. Now you were trained in Cuba and in the US. What's the difference in training? Is there much of a difference? There is a difference, obviously. Um, the, but the difference is basically on the approach to uh, the medicine. Um, and in, in basically because of the lack of 
of technology and the lack of uh, resources, like technical resources, most of the medicine in Cuba falls into the human resources. So that's why they, uh, they probably, you know, form a lot of doctors. And, and basically, instead of, for example, following a kid every, let's say, every six months with a MRI, in Cuba, the doctor will follow the kids every week with their eyes. So it, it, it's, it's sort of like a difference in, in, in the approach. Um, the, the other difference is also a little bit on the, what we call the mother medicine. Um, our, um, or, or the medicine in Cuba is very influenced also by the European currents. Um, while, you know, the American is more like Anglo-Saxons of mostly, you know, American model of medicine. Uh, but I think the main difference is, you know, the technical resources availability. Now, the eye and the brain, is it the same? How are they connected? How are they related? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, the eye, it's actually, or at least a, a significant amount of tissues in the eye are part of the central nervous system. So like, for example, the, the optic nerve and their accents that somehow extend within the eye um, are part of the central nervous system. So there is a very, very tight uh, and, and very close relationship between them, like the neurotransmitter in the eyes that are very common in the brain or the other way around. So that, that's probably one of the reasons um, many neurologic diseases manifest also somehow in the eye. How could we use the eye as a biomarker for neurologic diseases? Hmm. That's a very interesting question, uh, Dr. Gelb. Uh, the, um, because the eye have um, a window, the pupil, right? We can have a direct access to most of the structures within the eye, especially the neuro, um, I would say the neuro retinal. And, um, and because of that, somehow we can visualize the structure that are similar to the brain. So for that reason, we can use um, the structure, direct structural analysis of brain-like structures. Like for example, if you do a, like a tomography of the eye, we can do some sort of like a live biopsy of neural tissues, right? Like the optical coherence tomography does. And that allow us to have a direct access to neurons that can be affected on the same way they will be affected in the brain. Like it is, like Alzheimer is a good example of, we already have evidence that uh, Alzheimer 
that not only affects the brain, but can affect those neurons within the eye. So there is a common pathway in the pathologic um, uh, effect that also express within the eye. So the neuro-ophthalmologist is almost like the dumping ground for all other eye doctors. When the other eye doctors don't know what's wrong with the patient, they send them to the neuro-ophthalmologist. So, so you have to be an expert not only in eyes, but you have to be an expert in the whole body and in medicine. And uh, how, what is it like to have to see all those very difficult patients? Uh I think I should make a disclosure before we continue. Uh, the, um, since I arrived to U.S., I've been um, full-time uh, dedicated to the industry and the development of new um, technology for the, for the eye care. But I, one of my professors in Tufts University, he used to say, the neuro-ophthalmologist is the only doctor that can say, I don't know. <laughs> because you know, the whole change finished there, right? Um, but basically what he, he was trying to describe what you just said, right? Uh, when, uh, when a disease is not evident in the eye, when we, when all the eye doctors cannot confirm an eye or a, a noso, uh, nosocomial uh, issue within the eye, then they, they suspect that the issue with the vision might be behind it. In other words, in the optic nerve, or somewhere else in the visual pathway. And that's the reason when they don't find an explanation for a vision loss, they refer those patients to the neuro-ophthalmologist or the neuro-optometrist for the evaluation of those patients. That brings us to the next question because in neuro-ophthalmology or neuro-optometry, we use the MRI and the MRA a lot. If you could explain to the audience what's the difference and why we would use those as an adjunct to help us in neuro-optometry or ophthalmology. There are several um, techniques for the imaging of the uh, brain or you know, optic nerve structure uh, that start with the CT scan, for example, which is basically a bunch of X-rays right? The, the group of, of magnetic resonance imaging and, or angiographies or even the functional uh, modalities of it, based, different from the CT scan, what they do is they create a, a magnetic field and they shift those magnetic field in a way that whenever there is a change in the in those structures it can be image the the difference also is that when you are using modalities like the um like the city scan 
it is much better for hard structures like the bones or, or other areas with different um, uh, density in the tissue. The MRI is better for soft tissues like brain itself, right? And that's why uh, most of the, um, you know, I would say neuro doctors, they prefer the, the MRI over the CT scan, although the CT scan is very good for other um, specific, you know, pathologies. The, and within the MRI, then you can use, you know, contrast to enhance even the structures within the eye, or you can focus on those tissues that are, mo that are moving, like the blood vessel, like not the blood vessel, but actually the, the blood, um, I would say, flow. So because of that, you can, because those are moving, you know, uh, part of the body, then you can enhance that with those techniques. There are certain amounts, there's certain number of medications that actually could affect the eye from statins to uh, medications like Viagra, the ED medications. Can you explain how they could affect the nerve of the eye and some of the, some of the side effects? Uh, to be honest, uh, we know that, like you well said, uh, there are many uh, drugs that can affect the eye, hydroxychloroquine, uh, tamoxifen, um, um, sildenafil, like, like you said. It is not really well understood the way it happened, but there is evidence, of course, that linked those, um, those drugs with specific you know, affections within the eye. In the case of the sildenafil, it, it's, it's still controversial, but most people um, believe that if there is some kind of predisposition in the eye, especially in the optic nerve, it can lead to um, ischemic disorders within the eye. Or the hydroxychloroquine, once you use it for long periods of time and or at a high dose or if you have any other issues in the body that predispose to the accumulation of the drug then you can have some level of toxicity within the retina especially in the outer layers of the retina so it is every drug affects differently and different um you know structures of the of the eye, but we're still learning. We're still learning on how to use it. But fortunately, we already, and, and this is part also of the drug production. So when manufacturers are coming up with new drugs, they are enforced by the FDA to do toxicity um, uh, tests. And that allows to understand when those, when you use those drugs, drugs, where is the probability, what is that probability, and what is the dose that will be, or will put the patient at a greater risk for this kind of affections. And statins have had some side effects of double vision or ptosis, which is an eyelid droop. Uh, if they go off the, the statin, does that typically go away? 
it it could it could until certain point. Fortunately, it's not that frequent. So if we look into the massive amount of people that use the statin, um, it, it, it is not that, um, it's not an effect that occurs very, very uh, frequently. Also, the new um, criteria of the um, cardiology society in US, some sort of like decrease the uh, intake of this medication. Uh, for example, right now we know that cholesterol is not directly the, um, related to ischemic disease. Only if you have high cholesterol plus some history of fa or family history of ischemic diseases then is when the, the doctor will put you probably under a statin uh, drugs. But if you have just high cholesterol, very likely, unless you have any other risk um, or risk factor, very likely the doctor won't put directly on statins. There are a couple of very common symptom or presentations that are referred to the neuro-ophthalmologist. One of the most common ones is double vision or what we call diplopia. What is the workup? What are we looking for as a neuro-ophthalmologist for someone who has double vision? Okay. When you are evaluating a patient with double vision, vision um, the first step is confirming, of course, that there is such a double vision. And there is a there is an examination procedures that allow the doctor to understand not only to confirm that the patient has double vision, but also to understand, which is probably the second step of it, whether is a monocular double vision or a binocular double vision. And what it means is that there are certain diseases in the retina and even if you patch one eye, you might still see double. Uh, or what we also call, that double vision can be also confused with what we call metamorphosis, but we need to be very careful, right? But if, if it is monocular, that already discard or rule out already a huge list of possible uh, diseases, right? Now the doctor can focus on those diseases within the retina that can cause diplopia or diplopia. If we confirm that the diplopia is bilateral, so it's, it's binocular diplopia, then very likely is because the normal parallelism of the eyes is broken, right? It is not working properly. The next question is, is it something congenital or this is something new or what we call also acquired? If it is congenital, then very likely it's because of, you know, congenital strabism and, and very likely it's not a reason why a person would go to a doctor. It's something already not. So very likely something acquired and within the acquired, depending on the age, right? then you can start looking for different uh, diseases. If the person has 70 year old, then very likely it's an ischemic 
um, uh, issue. Then you will have to look into whether it's an ischemic of the nerve itself that control the movement or is an ischemic within the nucleus in the brain that control all the movement. If it is more like a young individual, then you have to for sure rule out first tumors, then you, have, then you go into infections, inflammation, and other causes of, of diplopia. So that's somehow like very briefly, of course, of the workout. And then of course, like you will said, if there is no obvious cause for the diplopia, then the doctor will indicate all this imaging modality that you previously mentioned, MRI or CT scan, to confirm or rule out uh, the ischemic tumors, or what we also call compressive syndromes, that can lead to the affection of the parallelism. Um, it's very important to also understand that that position of the two eyes, in order to have both looking into a single point in the field, um, is controlled by many you know, nerves, right? And uh, each of these nerves uh, can also be linked to specific um, this is like a person with 70 year old or 80 year old with a sixth nerve palsy, very likely is an ischemic disease. But if it is a fourth nerve and, and a young person, then we have to more incline to other causes. So it, it depends on all this data that you are collecting since the interrogatory it can lead to a specific cause and help you to uh, rule out all the group of them. Explain what is six nerve palsy, what the word palsy means, or fourth nerve palsy. Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the eye is controlled by three, or the movement controlled by three main nerves, right? Third, four, and, and six. And, and the sixth nerve, it, it basically, so there are, 12 per of what we call cranial nerve, right? And, and of those, the six control basically the order or, or the muscle that make us move, you know, in horizontal way, let's call it this way. So when there is a serve, you know, a, a sixth nerve palsy, then the eye tend to inward and then create all those kind of, you know, diplopia issue. Um, it is um, because of the, of the way it is structured, because of the position of the nucleus that, that control that nerve, then um, it is uh, somehow um, more common or more predisposed for this ischemic events when you are a little bit, you know, getting into the age like we are. <laughs> so if you're, you're a seven-year-old patient and you're diabetic and all of a sudden you, you're seeing double, most likely it's from ischemia, not from a tumor. But if you're a younger person and all of a sudden you're seeing double, it's more likely it could be a tumor, God forbid, an aneurysm or something like that. Correct. Exactly. 
So there are those, you know, little details that since the person is walking into the office that you already start thinking about it and help you be more efficient, right? And, and more expedite in your diagnosis. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Thank you for tuning in to the Open Your Eyes podcast. If you like the video you're watching, please hit the like button. Also, hit subscribe for weekly new episodes of the podcast, along with pod winks and bonus content. All right, let's get back to the show. Let's talk about the person who has lost their vision and it's unexplained. They've already been to four doctors and now they're in the neuro-ophthalmologist. How are we going to work them up from a neuro point of view? That's a... <laughs> okay. You know what? Uh, the first step is a good perfection. Um, it might not be... Um, I'm not so sure in, in the U.S., but we, I remember having many, many cases that they were referred for, you know, bad vision, especially in one eye. And when they fall into the hands of a very good optometrist, it was 2020 of vision. There was never a actual loss of vision. So I think if, if we should never uh, assume that there is a such a loss of vision. We have to, a, a good um, neuro-optometrist or a neuro-ophthalmologist should start from the beginning always because Sometimes these kind of things happen. The next step is a thorough, you know, examination of the eye and, and understanding where the actual um, signs of diseases that can affect the vision. For example, when the patient has uh, inherited retinal diseases, it's very common that they start with very, very subtle signs that most doctors are not looking to it. Like a, a little paleness of the, of the optic nerve, of the blood vessel that are thinner, or there is a uh, grayish, you know, colorage in the red, that famous red, right? Those kind of little things already, you know, make you feel that, oh, there might be some inherited retinal diseases here that we should focus on. The other um, gender, right? Uh, monocular, painful, lot of vision, you have to, female, you have to rule out, of course, you know, uh, multiple sclerosis or uh, obturitis. Um, the, as you know, optoritis can be anterior or posterior. If it is anterior, then it's obvious. Very likely, every doctor will understand that. But unfortunately, that is only 10% of the cases. Most of the cases are posterior optoritis. So you have to fall into other then ancillary tests like electrophysiology or a very good perimetry technique to understand. Uh, whether it's such an, an affection. Um, then of course you sent, uh, you, you must send some imaging like MRI to, or even depending on your expertise, you can go directly to a spinal tab 
to to see if there is uh, you know some clonal um, uh, signs of, of the uh, immunologic disorder. So those form like what is famously called the McDonald you know criteria. So with clinic imaging and um, cerebrospinofluid um, you know data, and then you can make the diagnosis. Or of course, if there is any you know, tumors in, or if any you know ischemic event of, of the brain, so it's the list is really huge, right? But data like since the patient is coming into the office, and you already know whether it's a young or or old person, already automatically make you focus on a given group of diseases. There's always some you know exception. But most of the time, you following the rules can make a diagnosis of these kind of diseases. Let's talk about a common uh, neuro patient that we see comes in, loses their vision for 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes gets a headache, sometimes doesn't. We'll see scintillating on the side. Uh, that's a common, that's a very common complaint of patients. Probably we see one of those two a week. If you could talk about retinal vasospasm, retinal migraine, and uh, you know, and, and and just tell us a little bit why this happens. The that's what we call the fugax, right, or ephemeris loss of vision. And uh, when you have a patient with that those temporary loss of vision, also you want to organize yourself of whether what. How much it lasts? It lasts only a few seconds, or it lasts minutes, or it lasts hours. So depending on that, then you can, you know, direct that. If it is like a very, you know, primrose, it could be just a, you know, common flashes. Maybe there's a traction in the retina that is creating um, those symptoms. Or if it lasts a little bit more like the one you describe, it could be sort of like a spastic disorder of the blood vessels, which are um, most of the time linked to what, what you just well said, to migraines. And, um, and, and this is another example of how the two organs, right, like the brain and the eye, are so much related to each other that they shared the same symptoms. So even if you have, like if you have a migraine um, and the migraine affects the occipital lobe, then you might have even a temporal hemianopia or, or you can have a quadrantinopia or you can- Explain what that is, explain what that is. Oh, sorry. Um, so if the uh, brain if, if the part of the brain that is affected by the migraine, which is a base, basically a vascular disorder, right? It's it, somehow there is a dysregulation of, of the normal uh, contraction dilation of the, of the blood vessels. That creates a temporal, um, uh, I would say changes in the functionalities of the neurons it might start triggering in, in a way that it creates a like a very bright uh, stimulus 
that some most of the time it migrates a star in a little you know section of the of the retina and I start moving up but sometimes actually it just shut it down the neurons and create an actual what we call hemianopia which is basically that in your field of vision and by field of vision is all the area that we can see with a steady eye fixating in a point right so if one part of this most of the time half of that field of vision turns black or turns brilliant of turns just one quadrant so depending on the area that is affected you might temporarily lose the vision on those um uh, most of the time is a very benign condition that and, and benign i mean if you don't take into account how debilitating can be in some patients but most of the time is benign painful loss of temporary loss of vision that requires a, a neurologic treatment right that can go from regular pill to injections right but it is very important that every time a patient have these kind of symptoms, go to a doctor. Regardless whether they go to a neurophthalmologist, a neurooptometrist, or a neurologist, it's very important to go to a doctor because sometimes those can turn into, into permanent defects. And there, are, there might be preventable if you go uh, on time to your doctors. What are some of the triggers of a retinal migraine as far as screws go or stress? Yeah, it, there, there are so many, uh, Dr. Gallup. It's amazing the amount of things. It could be noise stimulus. It can be a visual stimulus. It can be stress, like you said, like uh, most of the time, one of the most common is the deprivation of sleep. If you don't sleep, your you know the times that you need, like eight hours a day or more, then you might it might trigger. Or it can be as um, interesting, like a Chinese um, you know kind of a spice. There's a very um, there's actually a, a migraine that is called Chinese restaurant migraine because the migraine is triggered by one specific um, spicy use on this kind of restaurant. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to be, I love Chinese food, but it, it is what it is. So there is, a, there is a personal predisposition to specific triggers, right? Like what you said, that on myself, it could be sleep deprivation, on other people can be food. So it, it varies patient to patient. And when ophthalmic migraines or ophthalmic basal spasm, it could last between 15 to 25 minutes. It could be one eye or it could be both eyes. Correct. If it, it is, uh, the vision. correct. You are totally right. The most common is the, and, and this is very important when the patient has the kind of symptoms they want to patch one eye because 
most of the time the patient sees as one eye, but it's not one eye, it's just that it affects one half of the field. And the patient might confuse that as one eye issue, while it is actually the brain, the one that is being affected and not the eye. But that's totally right. Yeah. And I just want to make sure that people understand that if this happens not for 15 minutes, but it only happens for seconds or one minute or five minutes, it's very different. And if you could explain again the difference, because one could be an impending stroke or one could be possibly a tumor and causing the nerve to be swollen or side effect to medication. So if you could go into that in a little bit of, uh, a little bit of clarity. Sure. For example, uh, it could be multiple sclerosis. Like if you're doing, uh, you might be doing exercise. And if you have, for example, multiple sclerosis and the temperature of the body increases for a given time, you might have blurry vision. And when you stop your exercise, that might go away, right? That could be a sign of multiple sclerosis. And, and basically what happened is that you have a latent um, inflammation of the optic nerve, but when, you, when the temperature raises, then it starts to affect mostly uh, the nerve. Um, it could be that you are, let's say, constipated and the, and the sudden increase of the... So when you increase the pressure, the abdominal pressure, that in turn increase the pressure within the, um, within the skull, right? And that pressure within your head can trigger a loss of vision because of the present. Normally, it wouldn't, right? But if you have, let's say, a tumor, and that tumor is very close to any uh, visual pathway, any displace, right? Any change in position can start temporarily affecting the vision. If you have like um, common, you are a, let's say a juvenile, you have, let's say uh, 13 year old female in, you know, your metabolic coming through a lot of metabolic change, you're a little bit overweight and then you sneeze and you have a blackout, right? That could be because you have high benign, high intracranial pressure. So there are many, 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 many reasons why you may have, and depending how you describe it, that's why it's very important that the patient know himself and, and be very detailed. The more details they can uh, provide to the doctor, the easier it will be to come up with the diagnosis. Let's talk about eye movements. How can we diagnose some systemic disease based on poor or irregular eye movements? Oof. Uh, you previously mentioned probably one of the most common ones, which is diabetes. Um, diabetes um, is a, a systemic disease, like you know, that can affect the most of the target of the diabetes are the blood vessels, right? And blood vessels are everywhere, including those nerves that, that control the, uh, the movement of the eye. So when you have diabetes, you are at risk to develop this kind of, of affection of the nerves that affect the uh, 
the or that are in charge of the ad movement. If you have um, loss of vision for you know many other diseases, right? You might end up with um, what we call nystasm, right? And the nystasm will create some sort of like you know constant movement of the eye, and depending on the direction, whether horizontal, bilateral, that can also let the doctor know whether it's a congenital nystasm or is an nystasm can can be related to you know other affections of the brain, or or it can be something that. Uh, it is just related to the low vision, like for example, you can see on albinism, right? So there are that's a shaking of the eye, nystagmus. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Thank you. Um, when the eye, you know, it's basically it's a resultant of a continuous. Uh, the eye is constantly seeking for something to fixate, right? And when the vision and I'm trying to explain this in layman words. So when the, when the vision is very low, then the eye doesn't find that fixation is constantly, you know, creating this kind of of checking of of the eye. And thyroid eye disease could affect the eye eye movements and the way the eye and the lid are together. Can you explain that a little? Correct. the The thyroid is uh, related. Um, eye disease or orbital disease. There are many names actually from Graves that was, you know, Graves was one of the first, or probably, yeah, one of the first who described the disease. Basically is an autoimmune disorder. And what it is, is that the, the, the body creates an, an antibody, right? Which we normally have it to fight infections or to fight any uh, foreign um, tissue or foreign body within the eye, right? Within, sorry, within the body. Well, the problem here is that those antibody, when they look at the tissues of the, of the thyroid and the tissues within the orbit, they recognize those tissues as, as a foreign and then as a strange, and they start fighting those tissues. So it's not that the thyroid affects the eye, it's that there is a common basic disease that affects both at the same time, or asynchronous, or only one of the other. So not necessarily they have to happen always at the same time. And basically there is an over-expression inflammation within the tissues of the orbit that could be two main. First is the fat within the orbit. So the bone structure where the eyes, the house of the eyes, right? Or actually the muscles that controls the eyes of the, of the, the movement of the eyes. When that inflammation happens, it starts to growing and growing and growing. And because the bone is a rigid uh, case, then the only way the eyes has to, you know, to alleviate the pressure is moving forward. And, and that's what we call exostylus, right? When the eye pops up, 
when the and and also because there's a muscle that control right the the movement of the lead you can either have retraction of that or at some point you can go into those but the most common is of course the retraction but at some point of the inflammation those muscles those movement of the eyes are compromised now specifically on the um thyroid orbitopathy or grave orbitopathy the way we want to call it the even though the movement of the eyes are compromised they don't usually create diplopia only when they have in a very advanced diseases when they uh, create diplopia and this is probably one of the reasons uh, sometimes this patient comes to you late because they don't feel it, it's just a change on oh my eyes are a little bit bulky and then or they feel dry eye because now during the night the eye doesn't close perfectly and then there's a dryness of the eye and they have keratitis or cornea ulcer or other most of the time those patients come for a complication of the actual disease and not because of the direct symptoms of the disease. And the plopia, again, is double vision. Keratitis is an irritation, uh, like a scratchiness on the front of the front surface of the eye of the cornea where you have little sores on the front surface of the cornea. And this is similar, this autoimmune process is similar to myasthenia gravis that can manifest in the eye. That is correct. Uh, in this case is what you describe is the opposite that the eye tends to close and close and close and close and 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 is because of the you know a an immune disorder of the muscles in this case the muscle of the eye but it affects all the muscles in your body depending on the patient sometimes the eyes are the first symptom the 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 drop of the you know the of the lead or ptosis that we call, right? Uh, sometimes it's a breathing difficulty. So depending on the specific patients, they might have different symptoms. And, and there are different techniques in the, within the office that the doctor will have to understand whether it's a myasthenia-like you know, ptosis or is actually a ptosis for any other kind of disease. So let's turn our attention to ticks. It's very common for a parent to bring a young child in because they're blinking like this or, and they can't stop with a, like a blepharospasm. What is that typically indicative of? Most of the time it's just a, um, what do you call maniac? It's not maniac. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a, um, hmm. Uh, you will have to help me on the term in English because that it's sort of like uh, just the kid tend to do it because it's a stress or because not not because of an organic problem within the within the eyes or within the brain of the person. Most of the time, it's just a stressful condition, and they tend to you know have this kind of of movement, um, sometimes involuntary movement of the eye. 
Um, this kind of takes depending on the also the frequency and the amplitude of the contraction, then we can sort of classify. Like some of them, the most common are the myokemias, right? Where there's a little ticks, it's a, it's a very high frequency, right? And uh, that very high frequency could be just a, a neurologic, you know, muscle condition could be uh, toxic, um, could be an expression of a toxicity um, of a medication being used, or it could be a much deeper neurologic condition that the, uh, the person can have. Another, um, it could be also a sign of epilepsy. Some kids might, you know, start with this kind of movement of the eye, and when you start looking into the electroencephalogram, then you notice that there's actually a part of the of the brain that is creating the discharge of the of the muscles. So many, really many diseases can cause this kind of you know ticks, but most of the time it's just uh, related to stress that we can you know console the, the fathers. Sometimes the kids are on a stressful condition within the school, uh, either the test or the being bullied or, or any other, you know, um, let's say psychological conditions that can lead to it. So I want to distinguish that from an adult who gets the flickering of the eyelid, like you said before, the myokymia. And I know sometimes this lack of magnesium, typically people will dehydration, get a little stress or uh, typically how do you, what do you recommend for that? Um, it, it depends on, on the cause of that, um, if it is like patients that, you know, dehydrated or they have metabolic issue, you have to, um, suggest to use like a nutraceuticals to use, uh, some kind of medication that can help supplement. Like, for example, if it is a, a, a potassium or a magnesium, uh, deficit, then you will like to use all those kind of, you know, medication that can help do it. Sometimes it is, um, it is not something you can fix with medication because you have what we call blepharospasm and you will have to, you know, inject uh, some medications uh, that can somehow inhibit the connection between the nerves and the muscle uh, itself. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. 